If you're visiting with us this morning, I just want to remind you after the service, we do have a fellowship time over in the fellowship hall. We have a um, pretty much a meal there every week, <laughs> and so uh, it's a good time to hang out and uh, just get to know each other a little better. I encourage that you partake of that. Also, uh, one other thing, on the, uh, the work day, we're actually, we have a men's breakfast that morning, so the work day will start about 10, a little later, but we're actually having a guest speaker for our men's breakfast, and uh, I have to still talk to the speaker, but I'll let you know um, probably this, this next week or so uh, whether we want to open that up to the whole church or not. So we're having a missionary come and, and share with us uh, who's uh, been here before with us, so. But uh, let's open our hearts to God's Word this morning. I just want to read uh, our text, and uh, it's going to be found in Romans chapter 5. And we're closing off off chapter uh, 5 today with two verses, verses 20 and 21. So it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteous uh, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The one thing that we have been looking at is uh, kind of this little mini-series here through chapter 5, From the Curse to the Cure, and today we get to the cure, God's wonderful uh, grace, and uh, it's kind of pick that up on the music a little bit. That's the theme of our message this morning, the uh, incredible grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think a lot of what goes under the, the subject of Christianity today is just purely uh, moralism that believes that somehow good people, if they try their hardest, will somehow eventually go to heaven. And uh, often those standards of morality and those standards of goodness are not in line necessarily with what the Scriptures say. Um, and we've been looking at the, in the book of Romans, and Paul has been beating into us uh, the idea that we are not good, that we are all sinful, we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory. And uh, that kind of goes against what we want to hear, it goes against what we want to feel, it's oftentimes therapeutic to feel good about yourself, um, and a lot of times that's why people go to church. That's why people come to Jesus. That's why people believe in Jesus. They want to feel good about themselves, and uh, he can, I think, help you exceed those goals, but that's not the reason that we should come to church. That's not the reason why we should come to Christ. The reason we should come to Christ is because we need, we are a sinner desperately in need of a Savior. And uh, God is there when you need Him. And He's there even when you don't. And I think that's a message that a lot of folks have missed. That they feel, well, I've got to go to church once a week, fill the little, you know, church... Uh, Click that off my my schedule and I'm good for another week. And we kind of buy into that, even as Christians sometimes. We think that our goodness is somehow earning our grace from God. And Paul 
looks at this as just the opposite. After really stating the theme in Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel, back in chapter 1, verses 16 to 7, 17, which reveals the righteousness of God, Paul shows that every person has sinned and is under God's condemnation. He shows that in verses 18 of chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. So even back in Paul's day, this idea of moral goodness was an issue. And he continues to show us that his death, the death of Christ on the cross, Jesus Christ satisfied that righteous demand that God demands of us. Remember, the, they were asking him, well, who can go to heaven? And he said, well, you have to be perfect as my Father is perfect. And we don't have that kind of perfection within us. The only way that we can get that kind of perfection, the only way that we can get that kind of righteousness is when it's given to us by our Heavenly Father through the work of Christ. And that's what he does. He imputes to us the goodness of Christ. And so we've been talking about how at this point in time in the book of Romans, a lot of the Jewish hearers were probably saying, wait, you're telling me that because of one man's sacrifice that everybody has access to God's righteousness? And as Jewish people, they would just say, that does not compute. We don't understand that. And so Paul, in the previous weeks, we looked at the illustration he used. He said, well, remember, there was one man named Adam, and because of Adam's sin, it it devastated the whole of humanity. And so he kind of drew an illustration, an analogy between Adam and Christ. And he showed us that in Adam, as in Adam, when, when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, that that sin has been basically tainted. It's been passed down to all of us. And we have kind of spoken in detail that we're not sinners because we sin. We're sinners because that's who we are. Just because you stop sinning, it doesn't mean that you're not a sinner. That sin was imputed to you by Adam's disobedience, just like Christ's righteousness was imputed to us because of his obedience. And so Adam's sin was credited to everybody, all his descendants. But the good news is Christ's righteousness is credited to all who are his descendants through faith in his work on Calvary. And that's a dynamic thing to understand. Because if you're a Christian and you're still trying to work on your salvation, you're still working for your salvation, you're going to be frustrated. You're going to be miserable. But if you're a Christian who truly understands that God has given you the righteousness of Christ and there's nothing in this world, there's nothing anywhere, even out of this world, that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You have that security. You have that that bound. You're bound to Christ. You become one with Him. And that's important. And so Paul here is anticipating a question that anyone with the Old Testament would have. Well, why then, Paul, if, if if this righteousness doesn't come by the law, because as Paul has discussed here in these previous studies we've looked at in Romans chapter 5, if you just read up a couple verses further there, he explains to us that even before the law there was sin. And so the law just kind of dialed that sin in. 
But people still died before the law was given. And if there was no law and they weren't disobedient to the law because there was no law, why were they dying? Because it didn't matter what they do. They were sinners because of Adam's sin. It was passed down to them. And so Paul really anticipates this question, well, then what do we do with the law? What's the purpose of the law? Didn't God give the law through Moses so that people could keep it and live? Isn't that why there's laws? So we keep the laws? Basically, what he's telling us is the law causes sin to reign through death, but Christ causes God's grace to reign in righteousness to eternal life. And in the words here in our text, in verses 20 and 21, when he said there in verse 20, now the law came in to increase the transgression or increase the trespass. I think about this time his Jewish hearers would have basically lost their minds. They would have thought, what? The law came so that sin would increase? The average Jew believed that the law came to restrain sin. Not to cause it to increase. And so they're, they're looking at Paul kind of cross-eyed going, what are you saying? We don't understand it. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But right now, I want you to understand, his hearers were almost taking a double take here. Did, did, did he really say this? Is this what we're reading in Paul's writings? Is this correct? He must have made an error. And it brings us to our first point. That without Christ, the law causes sin to increase and to reign in death. Without Christ, the law causes sin to reign and increase, which leads to death. There's a couple things here we want to understand. The first thing is this, and this is pretty simple. You can understand this if you're a parent. The law does not restrain sin at the heart level. The law does not restrain sin at the heart level. You may have rules in your house, and you may make your children conform to those rules. That's fine. That doesn't mean they're being obedient in their hearts. Uh, There is a sense, I'll say this, in which both the civil law and God's law, they do restrain sin externally. Um, You know, when you're driving down Jefferson and you see the sign, 35 or whatever it is, that causes you to slow down. Especially when you see a police car there with a radar gun, right? I mean, you really hit the brakes then. And usually by that time, it's too late, by the way. There's laws against stealing. There's laws against murdering someone. There's laws against drug activity and prostitution, all those things. And that may restrain people who would otherwise do those things. But the law cannot restrain the evil desires of a fallen human heart. Because I don't know about you, but I still want to speed. (laughs) Even though the sign says I shouldn't. Even though the law says it's against the law. I still want to do it. There's greed in our hearts that make us want to have things that aren't ours. And the law cannot bring my sinful heart, beloved, into this willing submission. Just because it's there. Just because it's the law. And Jesus hit the Pharisees kind of hard with their hypocrisy in these things. Outwardly, they practiced obedience to the law so that others would look at them and 
see all the garb they wore and how they lived their lives and they do all this stuff even over there in Israel today. They wear certain items on their, their person, hold certain scriptures, boxes, and they do their hair a certain way. All to stand out. Why? To look, hey, we're different. We're holy. But in their hearts, Jesus said that they were full of self-indulgence. He said that they were full of uncleanness, lawlessness. He called them whitewashed tombs. So remember, the law does not restrain sin at the heart level. Secondly, the law actually increases sin. The law increases sin. You say, wait a minute, how could a law increase sin? And Paul isn't just describing what's actually happening here, but rather he's really describing God's intent. He's describing God's purpose for the law. Why was the law given? God did not give us the law and say, here, you'll be saved if you keep this law. That wasn't the purpose of the law. The ultimate purpose... Really, it's not the only purpose, but one of the purposes, I guess I should say, is, is that the law was given that the increase of sin under the law would be kind of magnified. You would see it clearer. And what happens when that? Well, then it, it, it magnifies the holiness of God. The law actually increases sin. See, the law didn't make the human race, the fallen human race in Adam, better. It made them worse. (laughs) Because up until they had the law, they were just kind of living their lives. Were they sinful? Definitely. And Paul uses that argument because they were still dying. Well, why were they dying? Because they were sinful. Well, why were they sinful? Because the sin was passed on. It was imputed to them through Adam. They didn't even have a law. And Paul uses that illustration. How could they break the law if there is no law? If there's no speed limit on Jefferson, you could drive 100 miles an hour down Jefferson. Which may not be prudent, but you could do it. And nobody could say, hey, you're breaking the law. If there's no sign there that says a speed limit. But all of a sudden, when there's a law there, when there's a sign there, okay, your tendency to go over that that speed limit that's sin. That's, that's causing you to break the law. So the idea is that the law here came alongside of. And that's really what that verb there points to in verse 20. Now the law came in. It came alongside of. The law is subordinate, subordinate to God's overall purpose the idea is the law came alongside of the existence of human sin human sin was already there the law didn't create it it was already there but it came alongside of it not to provide salvation god never said oh if you just do this then no but to increase sin to give us kind of a template to give us a mirror to look into say wow this is what god expects (laughs) i can't do that so a couple subpoints here. First of all, the law increases sin by turning our imputed sin into, in, in Adam into actual sins of deliberate 
disobedience. Before they had the law, were they sinners? Yes. Did they sin? Yes. But there was no law. (laughs) So God couldn't say, well, you broke the first, second. Well, there wasn't any first, second, third, fourth commandment. But their hearts were still dark. Their hearts were still sinful. The law actually increases the awareness of sin. And this is Paul's main point here. He uses the word transgression or trespass. He just used this word back in verses 15, 17, and 18 in our previous studies. Adam disobeyed an explicit command by God. Don't eat of this tree. You can eat the fruit of anything else. You can do whatever you guys want. Just don't go to this tree and eat this fruit. I don't want you to do that. You have free reign of everything else. And what happened? He, he disobeyed that explicit command and then made excuses for disobeying it. And when you stop and you think of the contrast of, of those living from Adam until Moses, they still sinned, but not in the same way Adam sinned. Before the law, were those people sinners? Yes, but they were, they were sinners differently than from what Adam, because God didn't speak to them. He didn't come down and say, hey, you can do anything you want, but don't do this. Until the law was there, they didn't have God's explicit commandments. That's what he says there back in verse 14, right? He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, because they were still sinners, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, they didn't sin directly disobey God in any way, but their, their sin was imputed to them. They violated their consciences, Romans 2, 12 to 15 tells us. But when God gave the law, the transgression of Adam increased in that now sinners basically violated God's explicit commands. Now there was a list of things that they could violate. So the law of Moses turned those it addresses really into their own Adam, one commentator says. Each sinner like Adam now broke an explicit law. And Paul says in verse 20, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Have you ever done something wrong that you didn't know was really wrong? Maybe it's some weird whatever. You're kind of going, ah, you know, I better check on this, I don't know. Or somebody may point it out to you, you know, I, I know as you do this, you know, that's not really correct. You shouldn't be doing that. You kind of had maybe a feeling inside, but you didn't really know for sure. But then when you learned that the law forbid what you were doing, then all of a sudden your awareness was increased, right? So then you couldn't just continue down that path. A lot of times people will come to Christ. Young couples will come to Christ. They'll be living together. They'll think they I mean, if they're from a purely pagan background, they don't have a problem with that. All of a sudden they're saved and they're living together and somebody kind of has to point out to them look this isn't what god has planned really seriously yeah that's what marriage is all about you got to take them to the scriptures and as soon as you tell them that they're like whoa okay i guess we got to change this (laughs) we got to do something we got to change this this living situation 
So it's honoring to God now that we're following Christ. So when you learn that the law specifically forbids doing what you were doing, someone who is in Christ would obviously yield to the law. And if you continue to do it, the Bible says if you continue to do what you know, that which is not right, it's sin. Because you're deliberately disobeying. Second thing, the law increases sin by imputing our guilt to our account. In in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says, where there is no law, there is no violation. In verse 13 of chapter 5, excuse me, 5, uh, yeah, chapter 5, 13, he says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but the sin is not imputed when there is no law. So sin existed before the laws I just explained. And they instinctively knew that they were doing something wrong, but God never expressly forbid it. So when the law came, the transgression increased by actually telling us, hey, you're guilty. It imputed that guilt to all of us. And then thirdly, the law increases sin by exposing the utter sinfulness of the sin. And removing all excuses for disobedience. Look over at chapter 7, Romans 7, verse 13. Paul says, he writes here, Did that which is good then bring death to reign, or to me, uh, by no means? Well, how did death come to me? It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. He says, through the commandment, sin would be known as sin, would be utterly sinful. It's one thing to do something that breaks the law when you're not aware of the law. And if you've ever been pulled over or you've ever broken a, a traffic violation of some sort and the officer comes up to give you a ticket and you say, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. <laughs> you know, most of the times they'll say, well, what? Ignorance is no excuse for the law, right? It's still the law. And I'm going to have to write you a ticket or maybe they'll be gracious and give you a warning, whatever it might be. But when we have deliberate disobedience, it reveals our sin to be utterly sinful. There's no excuse anymore. It's kind of like when you're raising children and you take them through this process. And, you know, the, the older they get, and maybe when they're a little baby or whatever, and they're in a restaurant and they're throwing things and they're acting up, well, they're a little baby. But surely you wouldn't expect a 13-year-old to be in a restaurant throwing things and acting up, and you're just sitting there, well, you know, he doesn't understand. You know, you wouldn't do that. You would discipline your child. you say, no, this, this behavior is, is not becoming your age. You need to change. And punishment, discipline helps us change that child's sinful behavior. The fourth thing is law increases the law increases sin by stimulating our sinful flesh to disobey it. You say, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, this isn't really what Paul is saying in verse 20, I don't think. But I think in light of of what he goes on to say, if you look over at chapter 7, verses 7 to 11, 
He talks about the law and sin. And he says this in the beginning of verse 7 of Romans 7. He says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. See, what Paul is saying here is that basically where there is no law, there's no desire to break the law. But all of a sudden you have a law, what happens? Our flesh says... (laughs) You know, I know that sign says 35 miles an hour, but I'm in a hurry. So I'm going to drive 65 miles an hour. Or I know, you know, a good, I think a good illustration would be when you go to the doctor. You go to the doctor and you get a checkup and he checks your blood and does all that stuff. And he, he says, man, you got some problems. You know, you can't eat any more of this Blank, blank food, whatever it is. Fill in the blank. Well, before you went to the doctor, you could eat whatever you want. But now all of a sudden you have an expert in the medical field saying, if you continue to eat this stuff, you're going to die. So you can either choose to acknowledge what the doctor says and change your habits and follow that new law that's in your life or continue to do what you know you should not do. And that's what he says here. He says, before the law was there, I didn't have any desire to to break the law, but all of a sudden, now that God says, thou shalt not, well, then all of a sudden, there's kind of a new desire. There was an older lady in a pastor's church, and she told him one Sunday, she said, you know what? You better stop quoting the Ten Commandments. Because every time you quote the Ten Commandments, it makes me just want to break them more. And you know what? That's what's in our hearts, if we're honest. You know, when you see that sign, please stay off the grass. What do you want to do? You want to walk on the grass. Who are they to tell me I can't walk? You know, we went down to the, the Shepherds Conference this year, and there's a lot more people than there normally was, and so they broke you up into little color-coded things so you could go in the sanctuary certain times, and other times you had to go in another room. And I remember when I first read that, I thought, ridiculous. Who are they to tell me? I paid for this thing. I can go wherever I want. I mean, that was in my heart, to be honest with you. They had pretty good checkers at the door, so. <laughs> no, but, you know, I didn't take it to that extent. But to, to, be, to be honest with you, you know what? I could see, and as I talked to other people, that was really their attitude. You know, how dare you to tell me I can't? You know, and if that's just what it was. Because 
They were told they couldn't. And so it's important, I think, that we, we understand that, that the law is, is there for a reason, it's there for a purpose, but it also increases our awareness of sin. Uh, see here, the law is necessary to expose our self-righteousness and to convict us of sin. Why is the, the law there? To, to show us that we're so self-righteous. That, yeah, you may be a Christian, but hey, you know, how many of the Ten Commandments have you broken lately? Why do we do that? Because we're still sinners. Outside of Christ, there's a tendency, even in Christ, really, but there's a tendency outside of Christ especially, of the proud human heart to trust in their own goodness and their own good works. So, you know, you had people who were living religious lives and, and uh, before a holy God, and they started feeling pretty good about themselves. And so God had to give them a way so that they would not feel good about themselves, i.e. the law. Oh, you think you're pretty good? Well, here, try this on for size. We think somehow by our own efforts that we can bring ourselves before God, a holy God. But the problem is, is that like, just like the Pharisees, we focus a lot of times on what's on the outside. And we forget that the inside of the cup, the inside of the heart is wicked, it's, it's filthy. And so God graciously sends us the law to tear down our own self-righteousness and to convict us of our sin So that why? We'll be driven to the Savior. He did that with the Pharisees on the Sermon on the Mount, right? They took pride in in never having murdered anyone. But Jesus says, you know what? If you've even been angry with somebody, you're guilty of murder. It's not so much what you do on the outside. It's what goes on in your heart. They pride in themselves in their morality. But Jesus told them very clearly that, you know what, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you don't act on it, but just in your heart, you're guilty of adultery in God's sight. He did the same thing with the rich young ruler. You remember that? He asked what's he need to do to be saved. And he said, hey, keep the law. Basically, the guy answered, oh, I've done all that. Don't you have something else, Jesus? See the pride. He said, all right, I'll hit you where it hurts. Go sell all your possessions, pal. Give all the money to the poor. See, what was Jesus showing him? You haven't even kept the first commandment, let alone any of the other ones, because your money, your wealth is your God. So the law comes in not just to increase the transgression, but also to reveal to us how guilty we are of violating God's holy standards. And this is gracious on God's part. See, the idea that God is up in heaven is some kind of cosmic killjoy and putting out all this stuff. And, you know, you talk to people who are not believers and they say, yeah, I don't want that Christianity stuff. It just tells you all the stuff you can't do. You can't have any fun can't do this, can't do that, can't wear this, can't wear that, you can't, you know, and they go on and on, and that's, that's what they're hearing from a lot of people. And that's the exact opposite of what God wants us to understand. God's 
law is there to expose our self-righteousness, convict our sin, and drive us to His grace. If you don't know you're a sinner and you don't know you're in need of salvation, you're not going to be interested in God's grace. Or if you're caught up in a religious system that says somehow you can earn God's grace by doing certain things, you're going to take that road. Why? Because that makes you feel good about yourself. You actually have a hand in this. You have, you have part of this. You, you know, you're your own man. You do your own thing. And that's not what the gospel's about. The gospel's about being broken, being utterly dependent on God, crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because you have nowhere else to go. Well, the increased sin also reigns in death. It reigns in death. We saw this last week, that sin led to death, and it says death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even though there wasn't any law, there was still sin. Verse 17 said, death reigned through the one. He repeats it again in verse 21. As sin death, as, as sin reigned in death. A couple things here. First of all, sin reigns as an evil tyrant in those who are not under Christ's lordship. See, in other words, sin doesn't just come in as a polite you know, guest in your home. It takes over the home. Have you ever had people stay with you that literally take over your home? You might be good with that for a couple days, but after a while it gets real old, especially if they're not even related to you. It's like, whoa, don't they realize they're a guest here? This is not their home. They're a guest. You know, they can show a little courtesy. kind of like bringing a little little puppy dog home or a little kitten home. You know, the first couple of weeks, oh, look how cute. Oh, yeah, oh. Peed on the carpet. Oh, it's just a little baby. Da, 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 da. You know, six weeks into it, you clean your carpets for 50 times and you're realizing, wow, you know, this thing's got to go. What were we thinking? That's what sin's like. It moves in and it basically takes over he doesn't sin does not come into our lives to work with us to help us accomplish great things it comes in as a vicious predator it doesn't cooperate with you to help you be happy it may come in pleasantly at first you may even sense the pleasure of sin at first Seems like a nice little pet. Just keep it under control. It's not going to hurt anybody. It'd be all right. But then it grows into this evil tyrant that reigns in your heart. And if you don't conquer it, it will conquer you. And it will kill you. That's what Genesis 4 7 says. Secondly, sin does not lead to a better, happier life, but to temporal and ultimately eternal death. The Bible says that sin reigns in death, both physical and ultimately spiritual death, total separation from God's holiness, eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, look at this with me, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. 
Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is what? The second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the eternal lake of fire. See, I mean, at first, sin always puts on a good, good face, puts on positive outlook. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Satan slithered in there and said, hey, you, you, you'll be like God. You serious? Go ahead. Taste that fruit. Take it. Take it. You'll be just like him. That's why he doesn't want you to have it, you know. The Bible tells us that the fruit is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. Why not just give it a little nibble there? Just a little bite. It will bring you what you've always wanted. But see, that's how sin deceives us. It did not bring Eve what Satan promised. It led her and Adam and the entire human race into death. Think about it. Her oldest son murdered his brother, out of jealousy. That's an ugly thing to happen in your household, in your own home. Sin is always ugly. It always leads to death. I don't think... I've never talked to a man who had an illicit affair that said, yeah, you know, I just woke up one day and wanted to go cheat on my wife because I know it would just ruin my family. It would let down my kids. It would destroy my business. It would just destroy my life. And I just thought, ah, you know, for a few moments, lasting pleasure, it would be worth it. No. It always starts off small. It starts off spending a little too much time around the water cooler with that other person of the opposite sex. Engaging in a little bit too much conversation because you enjoy the same things in life. That's how it starts. But it always ends the same. So we need to be reminded of that the next time we're tempted. That sin is a bleak picture. Outside of Christ, God's holy law came so that sin would increase. So that it reigns in death. But thankfully, there's some good news. Number two, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, God's, the idea here is really super abundant grace. If you look at, back at Romans chapter 5, when he says there, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more. Verse 21 stands in stark contrast to verse 12, where he says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so God's saying, on the other side of this picture, even though there's this problem of sin, I have a thing that I have called grace. And it reigns through righteousness to eternal life. We see the new Adam, Jesus Christ, our Lord, righteous. We see eternal life. See, the backdrop of sin displays what? The glory of God's grace even more. 
That's why when people who have come to Christ have come from a very, very bad background, very sinful background. Maybe they've murdered people. Maybe they've done horrible things. And then they come to Christ. You, you see a fire that within them and a, and, a, and a thankfulness and a humility. And they realize, man, they were at the end of the rope. And you think of all the guilt that comes along with all the deeds of some of these people that come to Christ. You know, I think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, he's murdering Christians. He's murdering Christians. And he's thinking it's the right thing to do. That's what his religion is telling him to do. So he's like, okay, we've got to get rid of these people. And he's doing it. That's how committed to the cause he was. And then he's faced with the Lord on the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Christ the Lord. Wow. <laughs> he's gloriously saved. I mean, can you imagine what that would be like to live the rest of your life knowing that now you're a Christian, but before you were, you killed Christians? The guilt, everything would, would, would fall upon you. And what Paul is saying is that, you know what? There's a grace in Christ that even overshadows that. Where human sin is displayed, itself has nowhere else. Speaking of Golgotha, was at the same time the place of the most extraordinary manifestation of divine grace. When Christ died on that cross, beloved, I mean, that was the amount of all who had ever put their faith and trust, their sin was placed on him. Even though he never committed a sin. He was purely righteous. He was God. He was perfect. But he willingly took on the sin of all who would put their faith or trust in him. I mean, you talk about grace. I mentioned before, when you go to a diamond store, they put a, a black velvet thing down and then they put the stones on there. and Boy, it just makes them pop. It just makes them stand out. That's how sin is. It's a backdrop that, that causes God's grace just to leap out at us even more. There's a couple things here quickly. God's response to increase sin is more grace. That's what he says. The, the, the verb there translated increase or increased has the idea of numerical increase. But the, re, the root word is translated abounded there. It means to overflow. It means to have more than enough. And so when Paul adds the Greek word hyper, he really means that it's abounded all the more. So we can translate it here, God's grace super abounded. It didn't, no ma- it didn't, didn't matter how much sin was there. There was always going to be more grace. kind of like when you, maybe you, you drink a, a milkshake or you eat a Sunday. Maybe you go out, you have a, a good meal somewhere, and, you know, on that Sunday at the end, you got some whipped cream on there. I found myself a lot of times at the end of a Sunday going, man, I wish I had more whipped cream. So it ran out. 
Or maybe that special steak sauce. You know, I wish I had more of that sauce. That's not the way God's grace is. It never runs out. You never find your spot in life and say, man, I'm at the end of the rope and you know what? There's no more grace for me. I've reached the end. Donald Gray Barnhouse paraphrased it this way. The way he says this, where sin reached a high water mark, grace completely flooded the world. He develops that point and he talks about this superabundant grace and first of all he says grace is not withheld because of sin. God's grace is never ever withheld just because of sin. It's because of sin that we taste of the grace of God. Secondly, he says this, God's grace is never reduced because of sin. I mean, do you understand that? Aren't you, doesn't that bless your heart to realize that in Christ, you're never going to reach a point where your sin outweighs God's grace. And we don't operate that way, he points out. He says, if someone wrongs us or offends us, what do we do? Well, we withdraw from that person. We don't treat them graciously. But God is not like that. Think about it. Sinners crucified his son who he came to save. After the resurrection, Jesus easily could have instructed his disciples, you know what, get out of this evil city of Jerusalem. It doesn't deserve to hear the gospel. But instead, in Luke twenty four forty seven, he told them this, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name for all the nations. And then he added this, beginning right here where they killed me, beginning in Jerusalem. John Bunyan, in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, wrote this. He wrote this in a little book, that the the, uh, Jerusalem Sinner Saved. And it's kind of a a neat little read. And his point in that little book was that Jesus Christ would have mercy offered in the first place to the biggest of sinners. I think we need to be reminded of that. Secondly, God's grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life. Paul doesn't say, does not just say this in contrast to death reigning in life. But he says, now grace reigns in life. He adds that grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Righteousness here refers to the gift of righteousness that we have through Christ, our salvation, which is justification that all sinners get when they receive God's gracious gift of Christ. And God imputes the righteousness of Christ to them by their faith. And as sinners, we have been, the Bible says, declared righteous before God. Now, we're not made righteous in our actions, right? I mean, we still sin. We still have issues with the flesh down here and our actual conduct. That won't be until we see Jesus and we become like him. First John says. But hopefully our, our behavior changes. It conf- we conform to the law of God. We conform to what God wants us to do. 
We grow in godly behavior. But in 1 John, the point is that when you do sin, you you don't need to go and hide from your God like they did in the Garden of Eden. Because 1 John 2.1 says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So our sins don't cut us off from God because of this super abundant grace that He has blessed us with. And this grace, it says, reigns to eternal life. In verse 17 of chapter 5, Paul says that this grace causes us to reign in life. But here he says that God's superabundant grace reigns in eternal life. I mean, this even takes us beyond where Adam was before the fall. Do you understand that? He did not have a a permanent, perfect righteousness credited to his account like we do. I mean, that should give us a solid assurance of our salvation. What God began to do in us, God, he, he credited Christ's righteousness to our account. Even when we were sinners, he did it. He gives us complete eternal life. We don't have to worry. We don't have to wonder. John Piper, in one of his books, The Triumph of Grace Through Righteousness, he points this out about speaking about Romans chapter 5. He says, Romans 5 begins and ends with two infinite realities, eternal life at the end and the hope of the glory of God at the beginning. He explains that our, our future existence needs to be eternal so that we can experience more and more of the infinite glory of God. This also ensures us that heaven will not be boring. You're not just going to be sitting up there on some cloud, you know, counting stars or something. Um, Because God's glory is infinitely beautiful and enjoyable. And this is what he writes. Any amount of time short of eternity would be inadequate for a finite creature to experience the glory of God. That's why it has to be eternity, because there's just not enough time. He says, it will take forever for us to see all that there is to see and admire all that there is to admire and enjoy all that there is to enjoy of the glory of God. Therefore, God ordains that there will be eternal life for us. The last point here, God's grace is mediated to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the blessings that we have as Christians come through the Lord Jesus Christ, who graciously came to this earth. He was born as a man. He lived a perfect life. He bore the penalty for our sin. He died on the cross. He was raised on the third day. He's the mediator of all God's blessings to us. In chapter one or chapter five, verse one, he says, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter five, verse nine. He says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Christ. Verse 10, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. In verse 11, he says, we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Verse 17, he says, 
Much more than those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And then here in verse 21, he closes off and he says, through righteousness to eternal life, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All spiritual blessings that we have, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 points out that we have them through Christ. So his superabundant undeserved favor just keeps flowing, it just keeps flowing, it just keeps flowing into your life. In closing, there was a center in Bath, England. And in that center, it stands, there stands a, a stone marker there in honor of the, the city's medicinal waters that have blessed so many people. And it reads this, These healing waters have flowed on from time immemorial. Their virtue is unimpaired, their heat undiminished, their volume unabated. They explain the origin, account for the progress, and demand the gratitude of the city of Bath. That's like God's superabundant grace for sinners who have trusted in Christ. The gospel of God's grace is decidedly not moralistic. Rather, through the gospel of God's grace, as sinners, we are reconciled to Him through His abundant grace and the gift of righteousness. There's once a godly pastor who was about to die, and he said this, I'm gathering together all of my prayers, all of my sermons, all of my good deeds, all of my evil deeds, and I'm going to throw them all overboard and drift to glory on the plank of free grace. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we have access to this abundant grace that we so often read about in your word. Lord, thank you that it's not up to us to perform, to do certain deeds, to do whatever, to earn this grace. Obedience is definitely something that's part of our lives as Christians. Grace doesn't give us the freedom just to go sin because our sins will be forgiven. We don't use grace as a license to sin. But it's so good to know that when we do fall short, when we do sin, that our sins are covered. That you've paid the price. And when our trust and faith is in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are secure. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That no condemnation will fall on us. Lord, that should give us a spring in our step as we exit these doors this morning and go out into this lost and dying world where people need desperately to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we could share a life-changing message with them that will draw them into a wonderful relationship with their God and Creator. Lord, we pray this morning that if there's any here this morning who have yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, I pray that the cry of their heart would be, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That they would acknowledge their sinfulness before you and cry out for your grace. Lord, the Bible says that's enough to save somebody. You don't have to know a bunch of theology. You don't have to understand the whole Bible from cover to cover. You don't have to belong to a church. All you have to be is a sinner. 
who needs help, who needs forgiveness, and the willingness to cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. God will answer that prayer. God will save you. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing as we close with a hymn. And Father, we just pray for our fellowship time as well that you